Thank you so much, Maureen. And it's so good to see families here and just the energy of these young kids and to be able to pray together and bless you as families, as parents, as grandparents. Uh, just so exciting. I also want to say good morning and uh, just good day to everybody who's also watching online. It's good to be with you here today. Well, earlier this week, I sent out an email that went out to the church uh, with a quote from a fellow by the name of Palmer Becker. And it's a quote that I have come to appreciate more and more, and one that I uh, just embrace more and more as a particular people of faith. And it simply says this. It says that Jesus is the center of our faith, community is the center of our life, and uh, reconciliation is the center of our work. And... Um, Reconciliation that he's talking about and that we think about as we think of the kingdom of God is reconciliation that is both vertical between us and God and also horizontal between us and each other. Uh, and so it's, it's this reality that conflict has a way to divide us, right? Conflict uh, creates a division or creates a gap between people. And so reconciliation is this work to step into the gap and to see uh, some kind of coming together that happens. Uh, in Matthew 10, in our, our text today that we're going to be looking at, and I encourage you to turn there, we'll, we'll look at a text. It's about Jesus sending out his first disciples and, and embarking on them this mission of being sent out to do this reconciliation work of the kingdom. So now a question for you. Have you ever maybe courageously uh, and maybe you thought uh, graciously stepped into a conflict in some way? that maybe just kind of blew up in your face or that didn't quite go the way that you thought it would go? And my guess is, is that probably the answer is yes. I think for each one of us, we've maybe experienced different things where we, we step into a situation or we try to engage in something and step into a gap and it kind of goes sideways on us in one way or another. Because we are people who I think are wired for peace. We want to be peacemakers, but we realize very quickly that it's incredibly challenging, isn't it? It's complicated. A friend of mine uh, is somebody who is intimately involved in reconciliation work in South Africa around apartheid many years ago. And he actually worked closely with Bishop Desmond Tutu and also Nelson Mandela. And he facilitated reconciliation work in stadiums of thousands of people. And he also facilitated reconciliation work one-on-one -on -one with people of Mandela's cabinet. And uh, there were tremendous victories and great strides forward. And there were also painful and horrific setbacks and disappointment. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're engaging in reconciliation work at that level or you're just trying to navigate who gets the remote with your little brother. Um, reconciliation and conflict is complicated and it's challenging. And it reveals a lot of things inside of us, doesn't it? It re reveals a lot of who we are and some of the things that we bring to the table. And it also reveals a number of things about the other person or the other people engaged in this as well. But we've all been called to step into the gap. We've all been called to this ministry work of reconciliation that is vertical and horizontal. And at the very core of the gospel, and at the very core of this kingdom culture that Jesus is teaching about throughout the gospels, and he is living into, proclaiming, and revealing, is this ministry of reconciliation that Jesus ultimately has accomplished on the cross on our behalf. Jesus has done the foundational work. He is the fulfillment of reconciliation. He is the source of reconciliation in every direction. As he steps into the gap of sin between God the Father and us as human beings. And so Jesus has done that ultimate work of reconciliation. But then he also invites us and calls us to also step into the gap and to engage in this important work. 
And we see it all around us. We see the need for it all around, don't we? Especially in this age where it seems like uh, things are more polarized than ever before. It seems that people have more extreme views and more kind of sedentary views than maybe ever before. And yet reconciliation is needed more than ever, but maybe more elusive than ever as well. And one of the challenges is, is that in conflict, we, we tend to make caricatures out of other people, don't we? We, we kind of look at other people groups or people that we don't really understand or know, and we, we kind of caricaturize them, and we kind of categorize them or stereotype them in certain ways that, that puts them in a particular kind of box. And sometimes the stereotypes that we, we place on people have some thread of truth to it, but they're woefully inadequate and incomplete. And so as we enter into the gap and as we actually engage with people, we start to break down some of those stereotypes and those caricatures. But we do that. It's some of our human nature that has done that throughout the course of history. And you can see that easily in, in so many places. I'll just mention a few. I mean, it happened between German Nazis and the Jews. It happened between the Chinese government and the Uyghur Muslims, even today. It happens in Bangladesh with the Rohingya. It happens between indigenous and non-indigenous people. It happens between blacks and whites. It happens between Mennonites and Methodists, between ba Baptists and Pentecostals, between Catholics and Protestants, between conservatives and liberals, right-wing, left-wing. I mean, however you want to kind of categorize people, there's this tendency that we have to make stereotypes or caricaturize people in such a way that people that we don't really understand, that maybe we fear, we, we maybe hold at a distance because in one way or another that they're different. And it escalates the conflict. And we know that from Matthew's gospel that it, it happened between Jews and Gentiles. And we read, read that throughout the gospels. And as Jesus comes into this era and into these cultures that he came into so many years ago, we see this evident divide between Jew and Gentile. And we see that again today in Matthew chapter 10. So Jesus is calling his first disciples to go to the people of Israel. To help the people of Israel remember their calling. And he's calling them in many ways to redeem the calling of Israel prior to going out to the nations or to other people or to the Gentiles. And we know that the role of Israel in the world has always been significant but also complicated. You know, it's not lost on me that this very week that I was planning on speaking about the people of Israel and their role in the kingdom that modern day Israel and Palestine are at war again with uh, devastating attacks and destruction happening at a scale that has not been seen in many, many years. And so I'm not going to try to make sweeping comments or judgments uh, that pretend that I understand the complexities of what's going on there, because I don't, and therefore I won't. Uh, but I will say that the interpretation and application of even our scripture today takes on new challenges and actually has new layers with that kind of media information in the background. And there are obviously connection points, and hopefully we'll see some of those today. So let's look at Matthew 10, verse 1, 1 to 8. And this is where Jesus is sending out his 12 disciples. He's naming them, and he's commissioning them, and he's sending them out in a very unique way. So it says, Jesus called his disciples, his 12 disciples together, and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to, ha and to heal every kind of disease and illness. And here are the names of the 12 apostles. First Simon, also called Peter, then Andrew, Peter's brother, James, son of Zebedee, John, James's brother, then Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, 
Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. He said, don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Give as freely as you have received. Let's take a moment and just sort of pause and think about this list of men, these first apostles that Jesus sent out. Quite an interesting group. There's actually quite a lot of diversity here as you study and understand some of their backgrounds and, and who they were and what they kind of brought to the table of this group of first disciples for Jesus. Um, maybe it was their diversity that actually made them so effective in some ways. But you had partners in a fishing business. That would have created challenges right there in itself. You had a hated tax collector. Matthew identifies that as he's the author of this gospel, and he identifies himself in that way, which is kind of interesting. You have a zealot revolutionary, a nationalist, who is just passionate about the nation of Israel. And, and so that was an interesting one as well. And at any other time, these might have been people who, who might have been just as quick to stick a knife in each other's back as actually work together for a common mission that Jesus had them on. Then the other thing that you see is that some of them get descriptors, you know, kind of bracketed behind their names. Matthew inserts some kind of descriptor or something that kind of defines who they are, and others don't get that. Again, Matthew, the tax collector, as he self-identifies. Interesting. Then there's the betrayer, and then there's, again, this zealot, this revolutionary. And as I was reading this list again this week, I was thinking, I, I wonder what tagline I would get. Like, what, what kind of descriptor might there be behind my name if I'm kind of listed in any list as a disciple of Jesus? Would it be Bruce the, the timid or Bruce the distracted or Bruce the courageous or the faithful? I hope so. Or something else. I mean, how about for you? you know, what is it that would, you would want as your tagline behind your name in this list? But then it's interesting to also notice what Jesus says about where not to go. And he starts with that. He says, don't go to the Gentiles total outsiders, or to the Samaritans, people who were sort of outsiders. But he says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. And he says, go announcing the kingdom and showing the kingdom, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is near, and then show them with the power of the kingdom that the kingdom is present as well. And then he says in verse 8, this beautiful line, he says, give as freely as you have received. Give as freely as you have received. I want you to remember this line. Is this line I'm going to come back to later? It's a really significant, important piece, I think, of what Jesus is saying to these people as he commissions them. You know, as you look at Matthew uh, 4 to 7 in those first chapters, it's really about announcing the kingdom, where Jesus is proclaiming in the Sermon on the Mount and announcing what the kingdom looks like. It's this incredible rescue plan of God for all of the world. And then in, in chapters 8 to 10 and, and some of the ones that we're in now, it's like, it's like not just announcing the kingdom, but now it's showing the power of the kingdom. As Jesus is showing the power of the kingdom firsthand in terms of overcoming evil, healing sickness, uh, casting out demons, uh, calling people to repentance and forgiving their sins. So we're to follow Jesus into this kingdom. And Jesus says here to these disciples, do both. Both announce the kingdom and show the kingdom. But he says, go to the people of Israel first. And as I mentioned earlier, interpretation and application is challenging at the best of times. And uh, in this text, and the text we're going to look at today, it can be very challenging as well. 
One author, Megan Larissa Good, she says this about these two words. She says, interpretation is the art of discovering what the Bible meant, and application is the art of discerning what the message means for me today, how I'm meant to respond to it. It lies at the critical juncture between learning and lived response. So we need to understand that there's, we need to do the interpretation work and also the application work. So how do we interpret this? What's this about? Why is Jesus saying not to go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but rather to go to the lost sheep of Israel? It's interesting, but it's also somewhat confusing. Now, we know from the Gospels, as we read Matthew as a whole, as we read the other Gospels, that Jesus came for the world. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. We know that Jesus came that all who believe would be found, that those who would be lost would be found, and that he would draw people of all kinds to himself. But here he says something different. He says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. And so Jesus is wanting to save all people, but he starts with the people of Israel themselves. The Apostle Paul, he too talked that way. And there's many places where Paul explains that. I'll just touch on a couple. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, is what he says. A little bit further on in Romans 2, he says a similar thing. He says there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile is what Paul says. So there seems to be something here that we need to pay attention to that Paul is talking about and that Jesus is sending these first disciples out about go first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And if you look at Romans 11, and we don't have time to go into it a lot today, but I'd encourage you even this week uh, to spend time in Romans 11, even in light of modern events that are happening in Jerusalem and Israel. But it's very instructive and helpful for us and, and we can meditate on this chapter as it talks about the role of Israel in God's kingdom and how we as the Gentiles and the future church are grafted in. We are part of this extended Israel in many ways. But even in that chapter, Paul identifies himself, maybe his descriptor, he says that he is the apostle to the Gentiles in Romans 11. And he says it this way, he says, God has appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles, and I stress this, for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have so that I might save some of them. It's an interesting phrase. Paul is saying, I'm called to the Gentiles and I'm proclaiming this kingdom and announcing this kingdom to the Gentiles. But partly I'm doing that because I want the Jewish people, my people, to actually be jealous of them and what they're receiving in the kingdom and want back in. It's like, hey, we want some of that when it was actually given to them in the first place. So Jesus here in Matthew 10 seems to follow this order as well. Begin by going to God's chosen people, start with them, and then move out from there. And in many ways, it starts to unfold the great commission that we see articulated in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says to them, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses, telling people everywhere. But starting from Jerusalem, representing the Jewish people, throughout Judea, also the Jewish people, in Samaria, the black sheep cousins, and then to the ends of the earth the Gentiles. So that's how Jesus says it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 as well. It's interesting how this represents God's faithfulness to his covenant, his covenant to his people, and the continuity of his purposes and his plan for Israel, to redeem Israel to this mission-driven discipleship in God's kingdom. 
And as I was thinking about even modern day events and thinking about what Jesus might have been sending these disciples to so many years ago, I made me think again of Matthew 21. Fast forward to Matthew 21. And we looked at this passage on Palm Sunday because it's this passage where Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey and how in the Gospels it records how Jesus weeps over this city. And he says, oh, Israel, how you have lost your way. And he's, he's weeping over the people in Jerusalem, how they, how they have lost the way of peace. And it makes me wonder if Jesus wouldn't still be weeping today, even in these modern-day conflicts, as people have lost the way of peace on all sides, missing the ways of the kingdom. Well, in order to understand how the Jews, represented by these Jewish disciples, forgot about the extravagance and the blessings of the kingdom, I want to look at another passage in Matthew 15, a little bit further on in Matthew, and encourage you to turn there. And again, it's another actually complicated uh, passage that is actually kind of confusing to us at first glance. And this again, Megan Larissa Good, this author, she gives us some great insights into this strange passage, but it can still leave us with many questions. So before I read verses 21 to 39 in Matthew 15, just a little bit of context. So in chapter 14, what just precedes it, Jesus has just had the, Matthew just recorded the feeding of the 5,000, where, where Jesus has fed the 5,000 in a Jewish, Jewish region, and uh, then he goes on to a different part, a different region, and he actually enters into a Gentile region. And then there's this unsettling interaction with this woman that leaves you asking a lot of questions about Jesus. It's like, what was he thinking? What was he meaning? So verse 21. It says, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He goes into a Gentile region. And a Canaanite woman, or a Gentile woman from that vicinity, came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she, creeps, she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Interesting. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, it is, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith, and your, your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Interesting. So Jesus is talking about the lost sheep of Israel. And he's not talking about a few certain lost sheep in the nation of Israel. He's talking about the whole house of Israel and this lost house of Israel. Well, what an awkward passage. It almost makes Jesus look bad, doesn't it? A woman comes to see him begging for a miracle for her daughter. She's a female, already makes her insignificant in that culture. And then Jesus seems to make it worse. She's referred to as a Canaanite, which was like a slur. She breaks every social barrier. She's desperate for her daughter's healing. And Jesus at first just ignores her. Then the disciples try to get rid of her. And he says he's come for the lost sheep of Israel. It's not right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. The woman says, yes, true, but even dogs eat the crumbs. And Jesus commends her faith and heals her daughter. But again, the context of this passage, again, matters to help us to interpret and understand. The local Jewish religious leaders had just been giving Jesus and gang grief for not ceremonially washing their hands. And asking Jesus, well, why isn't that your disciples wash their hands and do this ceremonial washing before they eat? Because you see, unwashed hands in that time was a worse offense than during COVID. It was a moral imperative. Part of what you 
part of what sets you apart and makes you holy in that culture. And Jesus teaches them and responds to them that it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but it's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you because that's what reveals your heart, what's inside. So it's not the ceremony or the legalistic pomp that they've made it all about. And so Jesus is turning their kingdom upside down. and His disciples are rattled. And then this woman comes along and she's a case study of all that he's been teaching her. She's totally outside the religious paradigm. She's female, she's foreign, she's tainted. And everything the disciples have been trained by the religious leaders to disdain. And Jesus kind of waits to see how they respond and they seem to fail the test. Yes, he had come first to the chosen people of Israel, but he did so so that they could then let others know that God chooses them also. Other people just like this woman. And it's so interesting, in her faith, she just kind of skips right past all the religious legalism. She skips right past what would easily be offense. And she sees something of the kingdom that even the disciples missed, that this isn't just a one-loaf situation. That there's much more here than just crumbs. There's no need to ration, no need to prioritize dogs, kids, sheep. Who cares? Just give me something of the kingdom is almost what she's saying. Let me taste God's goodness. So here's a woman who gets it. Even when the disciples didn't. And Jesus commends her for her faith. And then immediately after this, Jesus goes on and he performs another miracle. Of the feeding of the 4,000. As recorded in Matthew chapter 15. And it's almost like, never mind the crumbs under the table, he leaves another remarkable miracle in the eyes and in the hands of these disciples. He asks them, how many loaves of bread? There's seven this time. And he has the people sit down and he feeds them and they collect all of the leftovers afterwards and there's seven basketfuls of leftover food. Now seven is a number of perfection in the Jewish faith. And this is the math of the kingdom. That there is abundance of God's grace for everyone, just as the Canaanite woman had spoken. And so this odd story of this Gentile Canaanite woman is sandwiched between two stories about bread. Okay, sorry, I couldn't resist that one. But there's this feeding of the 5,000 earlier in Matthew 14, which is to a Jewish crowd. Then there's the feeding of the 4,000 in Matthew 15 to a Gentile crowd. And in between this, we have this story of the Gentile woman. And so often we think of the world, and even in conflict, we think of a zero-sum game. That if somebody wins, then it means somebody else loses. But that is not the kingdom of extravagance that Jesus is proclaiming. It's a kingdom of exponential growth. It's a kingdom of exponential possibility. From crumbs to loaves that even this woman understood this kingdom truth. Remember Matthew 10, verse 8? It said, give as freely as you have received. That's what Jesus says to these disciples. Just give as freely as you receive. Do you realize, he's saying to them as Jewish people, you have been blessed. Now go be a blessing. And he's saying, go to the people of Israel and remind them of their calling. They keep forgetting their calling and redeem them into this calling. Help them understand again and again why they have been blessed, why they have been chosen to God. It's because they are called to be a blessing to others, not just to keep it for themselves. And you know, in our humanness, we tend to fight over crumbs, don't we? When there are actually baskets of bread in God's kingdom available for all. Extravagant grace of the kingdom. One commentator, Rodney Reeves, he 
He says that the first, this first mission effort by Jesus was to restore God's own people. And to restore God's own people who had been people who had been broken by religion. You know, the Israelite people, they had been weighted down and broken by the religious weight of the Pharisees, the rules and the traditions that had been made up and layered on over the years. And so they had just been broken by this religion in a way that they couldn't even see a Savior anymore. I think we can pick up this application quite easily as well, can't we? We see people who have walked away, fallen away, been broken by religion, and who need to see the power and the goodness of Jesus and the kingdom again. I think we all know way too many people broken by religion but longing for Jesus. And maybe instead of condemning the lost sheep for losing their way, their way we, we need to heal the sick, raise the dead, restore the ostracized, and expel evil, just like Jesus says to these disciples. And as we look around and see lost souls and lost sheep who've been maybe harassed by abusive shepherds and discouraged from relentless, difficult circumstances, we too might be able to just see with the eyes of God and the love of God in such a way that there is an incredible need for many workers in the harvest. And recovering and redeeming lost sheep is important discipleship. I think it's important for us not just to recognize that we've been blessed, but why we've been blessed. I know for me, I can easily say that I've been blessed and I have a responsibility with that blessing. I sometimes wonder and I think, you know, why, why was it that I was born into a family with parents who loved me and gave me every opportunity to succeed? Why was I born in Canada instead of a refugee camp in Myanmar? Why was I introduced to Jesus and the hope of the gospel at a young age when so many people go all their lives and they never hear this good news? Why were my ancestors given the opportunity to work hard and farm open land in both Russia and then here again in Canada when so many others never escaped the tragedies that overwhelmed them? Why were we as a, even a local church able to buy and build originally in this new area of the city many decades ago, having the city grow all around us but then having a few acres that we could eventually sell off and have financial margin in a time of COVID? Now, I don't really have adequate answers to some of these questions they swirl around in my head along with many more. I mean, we, we could say that it was because of our hard work, our ingenuity, our savvy, or something else, but what I do know is like the people of Israel is that we have been blessed. I've been blessed. In order that we might bring the blessing of God to others, that we might engage with Jesus in this hard work of different expressions of reconciliation and kingdom possibility that maybe we can't even picture right now. You know, back to that email that I mentioned at the beginning of the message. That email was about our proposal to engage in the complicated work of reconciliation around the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the recommendations that were made to how churches might choose to respond and engage. And so as leadership, we have a humble but bold plan to engage this work together with Métis and First Nations people. And as I've been thinking about that this week again, I, I was thinking, you know, talk about a people who have been broken by religion experience so much pain and brokenness with maybe lots of religion, but maybe little of Jesus' kingdom. And in many ways, money and land are like crumbs. I mean, they matter, but they don't sustain us for very long. They're actually not the basketfuls of bread that Jesus has for us in, kingdom, in his kingdom. That happens as we experience Jesus together in community. And we walk together recognizing our own brokenness and seeking Jesus together in the midst of our own brokenness. And that's what we're embarking to try to do. 
Jesus redeems Israel through grace. And it's partly a grace to just remember again and again why they were blessed. The grace to try again, to risk again in this ministry of reconciliation, to step into a gap even though it might blow up on you. To proclaim and live into this kingdom culture. And so we too are invited into this adventure to experience the kingdom, to take risks with those we might not know or understand, and to give as freely as we have received. I pray that God would revive us. I pray that God would redeem us. I pray that God would remind us why we have been blessed and that God would free us from whatever things are there that hold us back so that we too might be a blessing. I'm going to invite the worship team if they would come up at this time. And they will lead us in a song of response. But allow me to just pray as they come and as we worship together. Let's pray together. So Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the great redeemer. That you are the one who has ultimately stepped into the gap of our sin. The gap between God and humanity. And God, that you are a, a, a savior who works towards reconciliation in ways that we never could. And Lord Jesus, we just acknowledge today that reconciliation and peace is not the absence of conflict, it is the presence of Jesus. And so Lord Jesus, we pray that you would enter into our lives, that you would enter into our spaces, that you would enter into our families, that you would enter into the gaps that there are there between us and other people, and that you would help us to be a people reminded of why we've been blessed in order to bless others. And Lord, even as we discern and as we process and as we think and as we pray about how we might respond, even in this idea of truth and reconciliation with Maiti and First Nations people, Lord, there are many challenges and complications. But God, help us to be at least willing to take the risk and step into a gap and say, Lord, how do we come alongside and recognize the brokenness that is there within each one of us? And experience the risen Savior in the midst of that. And celebrate your kingdom together. So Lord, I pray that you would lead us, remind us, and bless us. So that we can be a blessing to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.